Hello everyone, welcome to our Saturday broadcast. So, uh, as usual, we'll start with 15 minutes of silent meditation. You can begin to post questions in the chat. Uh, maybe post your questions and then do a meditation with us. You can post questions at any time, and after 15 minutes, then we'll start to answer the questions. So meditation starts now.
All right, we're back. That concludes the meditation portion. And please continue to ask your questions in the chat, but from now on, anything that's not a question will be removed from the chat. So no, and no discussing or answering each other's questions. If you have a question, post it and we'll answer it in, or in order of priority. Thank you, Bhante. We do have questions. Does the practice have the potential to lead the practitioner to a point at which he or she no longer needs to consciously interact with hindrances and negative emotions such as bitterness and sorrow? The practice leads you to a perspective uh, a state of mind or a quality of mind whereby the hindrances no longer arise. So hindrances are, by very definition, uh, undesirable or, or negative states, states that lead to suffering. And so through... Uh, ob observation and the understanding that comes from objective observation, you change your habits, realizing that the hindrances are a cause for suffering. Seeing that for yourself, you, you just don't give rise to them anymore. But you should never not um, interact with them in the sense of ignoring them or avoiding them. The meditation won't lead to that. It will just lead to them not arising. Because you have interacted with them and you've learned about the process that leads to hindrances and the process of suffering that is caused by the hindrances. And that understanding changes your mind. Recently, I have been happy due to some material success, and I am starting to indulge in them, I can feel myself drifting from the path. I feel weak and no discipline. How do I tackle this situation? No, it's not easy to gain strength and discipline. It's, uh, it's hard work. I recommend focusing on the distractions, using them as objects of mindfulness. Uh, associating yourself with good people and undertaking the practice of meditation, uh, preferably with a teacher who can guide you through the practice. If you're interested, you could do our at-home course if you haven't done that. If you have already, consider doing an intensive course. We are going to be, mark my words, we are going to be opening a meditation center sometime in the near future. Uh, it looks like in the short term we're going to have a temporary solution in place due to some delays, but um, we should f fairly soon, in the next two weeks or so, we'll start to have people coming back and doing intensive courses. When I feel physical pain, it is easy to make it a meditation object for long periods of time. Should I eventually let go of it 
if I find I have noted it for a long time, or can you stay with it? You can, but you shouldn't. It's recommended that after a long time you just go back to the main object, focusing on the stomach. But there's no... Um, if you want answers to these questions, just remember that there's no hard and fast rule. It's just good practice, and um, there's there's practices that can lead to potential sloppiness or obsession or that sort of thing. So to avoid those sorts of issues, we recommend things like staying with the pain for a long time. So so don't quickly give it up, but eventually go do give it up if it doesn't go away. And just go back to the rising falling. Is it beneficial to meditate on love, love for world hardship and one's enemies? It is beneficial. It's quite helpful for the practice of mindfulness. It's something that you can do when you have. Uh, grudge a grudge against someone or hard feelings or that sort of thing what are the long-term benefits of an intensive meditation course is the wisdom gained forgotten once practitioners go back to their ordinary lives well hopefully you don't go back to the way you were before entirely Everything we do changes us. Meditation, probably more than a lot of other things, because it's so directly focused on the the very foundation of our experience. So you should find that your perspective on on your life changes, and you should find some things in your life changing as well, like like circumstances. You start to change your goals and your routines and that sort of thing uh, so that's part part of the wisdom is that change the perspective change uh, but you know there's a lot about the meditation that probably will never go away uh, it, it depends on the individual but there are some things that that do actually fundamentally change your perspective and there's a lot of things that that have the potential to help to con to lead to continued change by the way they affect your the way you live your life when you go back. Is it all right for someone to meditate overnight if they do not feel tired? Will that be harmful to physical health? I I, I it can lead to weakness i think and and a weakened immune system potentially so there are things you have to be aware of but i wouldn't be concerned about those things we're not so concerned about physical health in that way uh, there's no long-term problems with uh, with not sleeping i don't even know about the immune system but my sense is that there's some weakness that physical weakness that can come about mostly in the beginning if you haven't done it before and and if you're not very focused or mindful but if you become quite focused on your practice it can actually be of, of no consequence whatsoever and of course of great positive consequence to the to the mind uh, potentially even to the body because of the uh, alertness and the strength uh, uh, the 
focus and the purity of the mind that you can gain by by staying awake and being mindful so it's not some no not something i would ever really worry about the only time you should worry about not sleeping is is in times when you're not mindful because one thing it can do especially in the beginning is lead to hallucinations and without mindfulness those hallucinations can can uh, be, be incredibly disturbing and stressful and it'll lead to temporary insanity as well I mean, for someone who hasn't isn't practicing but for some other reason is staying awake they've done studies where people stay awake and they start to hallucinate that happens also during a meditation course if you stay up all night you'll find you start to see things in the floor or the wall or strange experiences but through mindfulness there's a understanding that they're still just experiences and it's not a problem with that. It, it's presented as quite a problem and a reason not to uh, give up sleep. And but it's really only a beginner sort of thing when you when you begin to undertake the practice of uh, well of mindfulness and, and of not sleeping. But it's not a problem at all, actually, if you're mindful. It's just seeing or hearing or whatever. Is it possible? to create philosophical arguments for Buddhism? And if so, would it be beneficial? Well, I think you probably have a sense of what my answer is going to be. That I mean, it's potentially, yes, you can, and it's potentially beneficial, but the benefit is always going to be limited. I mean, beneficial to what, really? Uh, one one issue is the attempt to assuage doubt through philosophical arguments, and that really is, doesn't have a great long-term effect. It isn't a great solution in the long term uh, because it doesn't change the habit of doubt, uh, and it doesn't provide evidence that is sufficiently uh, reassuring to the mind not like direct observation does so a much better way is to in in that case is to focus on the doubt and try to see it as just an experience and focus just on experiences so that there's no object to be doubted there, there's no there's no thing that you could doubt no theory no view no nothing just there's just reality and there's not much to doubt about that because you're observing it directly You've warned against becoming an ignorant practitioner and said we should study. What is meant by studying in this context? Can you recommend any material? Well, you can read the Buddha's teaching and read the teachings of teachers in this tradition. I recommend Mahasi Sayadaw's writings. Um, I mean, you can just listen to your teacher, listen to... The things I say and ask questions and read the, the material that we have, it's really not a lot. Uh, I, I guess I should probably adjust that answer and say that there's really not a lot of study you need to do. So make sure you have the basic texts or basic ideas, I guess, down for the principles of practice. 
there's just so much you could study, but the benefit is not so great. I mean, I guess over the long term, it's going to be quite helpful. I mean, it's a good pastime as a Buddhist to live your life and to constantly be in touch with the teachings and uh, gaining little insights, uh, I mean, intellectual insights anyway, into some of the experiences you might have in the practice. Just a broadening of your perspective through text. But that's just, I mean, there's so much of the Buddhist teaching, just read all of his teachings. There's no real need to discriminate this or that. They're not, it's not like they're organized beginner, intermediate, or advanced. They're just all presented there, and you can just read through whatever part of the teachings you like, and it's all going to be helpful. Is it bad karma to avoid people whom you don't trust because you perceive that they don't keep the precepts well? Or is it good karma because then you have a better environment to practice? Uh, well, karma, these kind of questions kind of belie a misunderstanding of the word karma. Karma is not, it's not actually a great word. The Buddha used it, but he was he was very clear to redefine uh, it. And so karma isn't actually karma. It's not actions. It's your state of mind. So uh, avoiding people can be with a positive state of mind, a wholesome state of mind, and it can be with an unwholesome state of mind. And that's really the distinction. Uh, it might be better to discuss whether it's the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do. I mean, there's really still no concrete, hard and fast answer to it, but it's generally a good idea to um, to stay away from such people. But all that means is is to live your life in such a way that uh, kind of moves in other circles, in other direction. So it's not about avoiding them, because you're always going to become in contact with all sorts of people in life, especially if you're not a monk. But even monks have to come in contact with all sorts of people. But your um, direction and your interactions on a, in, in a social sense are something you have a little more control over and something you should direct towards those who have uh, wholesomeness and so on. I mean, usually practically what it means is you seek out certain people and other people seek certain other people seek you out. As for the people who seek you out, um, you have little control over that and you shouldn't try to actively prevent them from seeking you out except in certain circumstances where it's clear that there is an unwholesome intent. Um, and I guess that's a big big issue there with when people seek you out. The question is, why are they seeking you out? If someone's seeking you out for wholesome purposes, then, it, of course, it's, it's a good thing to interact with them. But if they're seeking you out for unwholesome purposes, you, I think it's quite proper to avoid that, to... Um, you know, passively avoid it. Don't don't go running away with fear, or anger, that sort of thing. But uh, try and bear with it patiently and not engage 
when the engagement is unwholesome. Um, but then on the other side, there's there's the you seeking people out, and we often seek out such people for friendship or for entertainment or that sort of thing. And that's what you should try to work away from and seek out only those people who uh, can provide wholesome interactions. Pretty much it comes down to whether the interaction is wholesome or not. And so it's not so much about the person, it's about the interaction. And that's going to change, of course, from person from moment to moment. Why can I meditate much better and feel more relaxed on an empty stomach? My thoughts and concentration are so erratic when I eat food. Mm-hmm. Well, it's it's that's not really an issue with mindfulness per se so much. I mean, when you are distracted, that's an important um, that's an important challenge. I mean, it's also important that you try to be mindful when you eat, so that you you are uh, able to continue to be mindful because it does take away some of your clarity of mind when you eat, but also it changes the way the body um, presents itself. So there'll be physical lethargy, that sort of thing. Uh, but but much more important, I think, is not to get caught up in the um, states of relaxation and, and quote-unquote better meditation. There's no real better meditation. It's just whether you're being mindful of the experiences. So just because you're calm doesn't really mean that your practice is better. It's a sign of something, but not really of anything. Of well, It's not of any value itself. It's just calm, so you'd have to be mindful of that. It can happen that when there's great states of calm, there arises liking of it, enjoyment of it. And then as a result, when you have um, an, a different state of mind, like when after you've eaten, for example, that uh, you're disturbed by it, upset by it, and displeased by it, and caught off guard by it, and, and as a result, unmindful. So ultimately, I would say don't be don't just don't be biased towards one or against another state. Try and be mindful as the states change. I mean, what you're seeing is impermanent suffering, non-self. That life is un state of mind is unpredictable, unstable, uncontrollable and unsatisfying. Can you offer any advice on how to maintain my meditation posture when my mind tries to trick me out of it? I find it difficult to keep my back straight and be still. Yeah, again, non-self, that you're not in charge. You, that's what you're seeing. So the, the advice is to be patient. There's not really much else to it. Uh, any kind of frustration or desire you might have in regards to your posture, try and note that. But ultimately it's going to be patience. Just You're not doing anything wrong when, you're, when it, your posture does, does change. Just be mindful of that and you can move it back mindfully. And uh, just go with it. It's about being flexible. You know, your body starts to move and shift. Just be mindful as it moves and shifts.
How do you practice anicca Is it just awareness that things change or that they're inconsistent? Well, anicca you don't practice. Anicca is a realization, an awareness. It's an observation that comes from satipatthana practice. So ultimately, you really only practice satipatthana all the time. The kinds of things that you can see people describing in their questions here and what, of course, we see when you go through the at-home course or through our intensive courses, uh, that's all going to be anicca-sanya, dukkha-sanya, anatta-sanya. Is laying meditation okay? I often spend small amounts of time during the day to center myself and ease down, and I do laying meditation. Yeah, laying meditation's fine. It's useful sometimes to note the desire to lie down, because it's easy to become a little bit lazy. Lying is much more pleasurable than other postures. And so it can be useful not to immediately give in to the desire to lie down. You know, why do you want to lie down? Try and note the things that are making you inclined to lie down, and restlessness, stress, that sort of thing. But it's not technically wrong. How does a Buddhist deal with violent people, especially when running away or de-escalation is not an option? Um, well, I'm not. It, it's it's often, it usually is an option to run away or de-escalate, um, but Buddhists are permitted to act in self-defense as long as they don't kill another person. You can cause harm to others in self-defense for the purpose of getting away. I've recently decided to quit smoking weed and not consume alcohol. Would it be considered breaking the precept if one smokes intoxicated flavors in a vape pen, mainly for aesthetic and smoke effects? I, I think you have to reword your question. I don't know what you mean by intoxicated flavors because I don't think you actually mean intoxicated flavors. I've never heard of such a thing. First of all, it's poor grammar because the flavors themselves are not intoxicated. That would be like saying the, the flavors themselves are drunk, right? That's what you're saying, basically, which is not what you mean. Um, I guess you mean intoxicating flavors, but that the flavors themselves would be intoxicating doesn't seem right either. I assume you're just saying flavors that are pleasurable, and so they... they um, intoxicate you in a Buddhist sense, perhaps that's what you mean. But I don't assume that you mean alcoholic flavors or some kind of drug, drug, um, drugged flavors, flavors that drug you as well, I, I, like nicotine in the flavors. Um, I assume you just mean the flavors in a vape pen because that actually is, I think, a really useful um middle step i mean it's much more i think it's much more important for someone who is quitting smoking and it's apparently a really effective way the vaping can be a horrible way to increase 
your nicotine habit apparently, but it can also be a great way if your intention is to quit to slowly, slowly reduce the amount of nicotine and until the point where you're not actually smoking nicotine anymore. Um, I, I mean, I would say you should be diligent in practicing to let go of your attachment to the, the silly addiction to actually physically smoking something, even though there's no drug in it, um, because it's kind of a silly addiction, and it certainly is an addiction. It's a cause for... Um, clinging and 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 sensual pleasure and that sort of thing i mean it's not going to lead to clarity of mind but if you're mindful it shouldn't be very hard to let go of um i would say it's a good intermediary step for between smoking weed and 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 alcohol i mean i would say change your your lifestyle find people associate with people who aren't doing those things I don't see either of those things as um, as addictive to the extent uh, that nicotine is, though I know many people claim to be, or no, not claim to be, that there is an acknowledgement that people are very addicted to alcohol. It's a, something that I've never experienced, but apparently it's a thing. So, um, yeah, f finding ways to to mitigate that, like having a placebo of some sort could be intermediarily useful, but ultimately change your lifestyle, find better, find people to associate with who aren't doing those things and, and undertake meditation practice. Is it break? So, so basically, is it breaking the precept? I mean, I want clarity on that word intoxicated, but as far as I understand what you're trying to say, no, it wouldn't be breaking the precept. Now, if there is some drug in there, then it could potentially, though I don't think it's probably fair to say that nicotine breaks the fifth precept. It's not great, but it's maybe kind of a minor breach of the fifth precept, not a major breach of it. Like coffee might even be considered to be kind of a breach or in against the letter of the fifth precept, perhaps. Against the spirit, sorry, not the letter, against the spirit of the fifth precept. But then, really, any addiction is. Mm, no, any, yeah. Well, nicotine and and caffeine probably are somewhat against the spirit of the fifth precept. What is your view on practicing the jhanas? Jhana means meditation. What we practice is meditation. That's all I'm going to say on that. Is one liability for the influence one has on other people, as in a public figure, even though one just wants to live their life, and is not saying people must engage in what he engages in? I have to read that again just a second. Well, you couldn't have phrased this any easier, I guess. So a, a public figure has influence over others, even though they just want to live their life. But is it a liability? Hmm. 
I don't think so. I mean, look at it from a perspective of karma, your state of mind. What is your state of mind? Um, it, it's it's a um, result. So it's an example of how the results of karma can be uh, amplified. But we're not really concerned with results. What are the specific results of my karma? Like if one person performs a wholesome karma and another person performs a wholesome karma, the results of one person performing them can be amplified. In the, this is a good example. Someone is a, a, a person of public inf, a person of a, a public figure, uh, but that doesn't change the nature of the state of mind of the karma, right? So, my advice for someone who is a public figure is just the same as the advice for anyone else: be mindful and live your life in a mindful way, and. Yes, of course, you'll see that the effects are amplified, but it's not going to change what's the right thing to do, understand? So I, I wouldn't be concerned about the effect your your actions have on others. Be much more concerned about the rightness of your actions. And I think to some extent that's how the Buddha lived. Even Even, even the Buddha lived much more in terms of what was the right thing to do than concern about the consequences. So even he who, who ended up teaching so many, so many people um, was always just doing the right thing. How can we sit still and meditate for hours on end? The longest I've meditated is about three hours, but I would really like to try and meditate for longer and still retain awareness. Well, that's just liking or wanting. So when you have that thought of sitting for a long time and, and you like that idea and then you want to do it, you should not liking or wanting. I don't recommend to do hours and hours of sitting on end. Try and do walking and sitting to, in alternation. My max would be something like one hour walking, one hour sitting. You'll find that that's uh, probably more sustainable. And then you can do like 8, 10, 12 hours a day because it's switching between walking and sitting. After starting meditation, I lost contact and cut ties with friends and members of my extended family, uncles and cousins. Is there any benefit in maintaining a relationship with one's extended family? Yeah, family can be quite beneficial on a practical level. I mean, there's a sense of bond that it can be quite supportive, mutually supportive. Can be. Obviously, some family ties are, are, are destructive and harmful. Uh, so without knowing your situation, I couldn't give an answer. But um, that's not really my job I, anyway, and that's not really the, the important thing to focus on. It's not about the specifics of whether you cut ties or keep ties. It's about, again, doing the right thing and having proper interactions. Mostly, I, it, my recommendation is to stop looking in terms of people and start looking in terms of uh, interactions and experiences, because you're in, your individual interactions with, a, with single people are going to be different from day to day, from moment to moment. And if you get stuck, which is quite often the case, we get stuck on what we think of a person it can color your 
and and um, um, prevent you from seeing clearly the interaction. So if you come into an interaction with someone with a prejudice against them or towards them, then you're not able to properly appreciate the, nat the true nature of the, of the interaction. Right? If you're prejudiced against them, you're going to be angry and, and potentially they're, they're, they've changed. I mean, that, that's usually the case. Someone did something to hurt you and then you're angry and then next time you meet, you do something to hurt them and then they're angry and it perpetuates in this way. But quite often the next interaction will be, you know, if, if you're able to let go of past interactions can be quite different. So generally in all relationships, try and take things as they come and stop looking at people and start you know, seeing, seeing the interactions and who they are in this interaction as being different from who they were in, in a past interaction. And, and so, and therefore, family doesn't really have any meaning. It's whoever you're with at any given time. When you're interacting with any one person, you try and take that experience with mindfulness. Why am I so dissatisfied with my practice or lack thereof? We're not really concerned with the why of things. We're very much interested in the nature of things like dissatisfaction. And if you learn more about the nature of dissatisfaction, you'll be less inclined to be dissatisfied. It doesn't matter why. What matters is, is the what. What is dissatisfaction? Once you know that, then you free yourself from dissatisfaction because there's no reason to be dissatisfied with anything. It's just not a useful mind state. Um, although it's just a word, and, and the word can mean um, a sense of lack of complacency. Right? We say we're dissatisfied something. Sometimes we mean um, we aren't giving up we aren't feeling like we're finished. We, we acknowledge that there's more to be done. But I don't think that's what you're referring to. Either way, it still doesn't matter why. What matters is what, what, what is that thing that you're talking about that you call dissatisfaction. And if it's a good sort of dissatisfaction, then you'll see that. If it's a bad sort of dissatisfaction, you'll see that. And it will change your mind accordingly. I feel I've absorbed a lot of heaviness after interacting with people. This hinders any social interaction and meditation practice as well. How can I deal with this situation and find a better way? Well, it's just a feeling, and we deal with it just as feelings. I'd be careful about um, passing judgment in terms of what hinders social interaction and so on. I mean, it... it, it quite often would, would be a, a right thing to observe. It's just not really all that helpful to have this narrative going on about things that are hurting you or that sort of thing. Just try and take things as they come. You know? So when there is a heaviness, and, and also what you're talking about is, is, is abstract. You're saying you've absorbed a lot of happiness. That's not true. 
that's uh, you, you you're conceptualizing this you see you're conceptualizing a you you who uh, an entity like a bucket that has been filled up with heaviness i mean it's the kind of thing that you're talking about or like a sponge that has absorbed a lot of water and there's no such sponge there's no such being um, in the past what would be accurate is to say in the past you had certain experiences that relate that involved other people that you interpreted as being the absorbing of heaviness but that was just an interpretation the truth is that those those experiences are gone they are completely gone there there's no trace of them all that there is is the effects of your past experiences and so those effects are in and of themselves uh, experiences um, discrete experiences they have no connection with the past you're not still carrying around something that you absorbed in the past right so try and focus on the experiences irrespective of what happened in the past and when you have social interactions and you feel whatever it is you feel again rather than interpreting it in some way as hindering being hindered by something else take it as it is what is the experience that you have you'll you'll find that much more valuable because that'll tell you the ingredients that you're putting into the experience when you interact with someone what are the ingredients are you um, liking or disliking or worried or afraid or or so on so ultimately the answer to your question will be the practice of mindfulness uh, without reference to the past and be very careful about not picking up these sorts of narratives where i have this has happened to me in the past and it's weighing me down in the present it's those are not helpful they're wrong they're they're conceptualizing something that doesn't really exist it's called reification it's a very big issue in buddhism something we don't want to do What is a simplified list of the benefits of meditation when the thought, what's the point of this, arises? I don't know what you're referring to. I don't, I don't really have an answer for that question. I'm sorry. How can we be sure if a memory of a past life is truly a memory, not just something fabricated by the mind? Well, you can't. Memories are experiences. This is, this is the nature of, this is an important aspect of the nature of reality, that the only thing you can be sure of is that the reality is is, is is happening the experience is happening so when you see something nothing about it is certain except for the fact that it is seeing you can't be sure that you're actually seeing what you're seeing or if it's just something an illusion in the mind but regardless it's still seeing so memories are the same a memory is a thought and a, or a vision or whatever and that's that's something you can be sure of apart from that there's nothing else you can be sure of so um, it's not a great question. I mean, I'm not, I'm not trying to call you out, but be clear that this isn't a very important or useful question, because we don't need to be sure of such things. There's no, there was no sense that in Buddhism you ever had to be sure of such things. 
There's nothing to be sure of in the past or the future. All that you have to be sure of is the present. Why did the Buddha say that all experiences are preceded by mind, given people think the brain produces experience? He didn't actually say that, um, though I'm not, doesn't really get into the second part of your question, the, this, the statement you make at the end. He said that all dhammas, but by dhammas it's meant um, really karma, honestly. All, all, he says all dhamma, the word is dhammas, and, and here dhammas is referring to uh, wholesome and unwholesome states of mind, you know, the important realities. I mean, it may be that he actually was saying that all dhammas, which would be all realities, not all experiences. Um, But I mean, it's not something. It's the Dhammapada. It's poetry. It's not something you should take as doctrinal theory, um, because it was in the context of uh, a monk stepping on some insects without even knowing that the insects were there, and because his awareness wasn't a part of the equation, it wasn't considered to be. Um, it wasn't, there was no creation of Dhamma in the, in the sense of unwholesome Dhamma, unwholesome states, because there was no mind preceding it. That's all the Buddha was saying there. As for people thinking the brain produces experience, well, that's just silly. How do I practice Samadhi meditation? Samadhi is not a type of meditation. Samadhi means concentration or maybe focus, something between focus and concentration. And uh, most meditations involve samadhi pretty directly. So you could try our meditation, and it would be the cultivation of samadhi. You can read our booklet and do the at-home course, do an intensive course. Sometimes when listening to guided meditations, my mind shuts off. After 30 minutes, I do not recollect everything. I was not sleeping, just have no recollection of that time. What is this? Well, it can be different things. It's some kind of absorption, it sounds like. I don't have a lot to say about it because it probably sounds like you probably weren't practicing according to my teachings. I mean, if you were, it can still happen, but... It's not of any consequence. I would just try and be mindful before and after it. How do we handle the differing opinions of others in the modern world? Is it appropriate to cut off all sources of this? Would that be avoiding reality? No, I mean, why would you cut off the sources of different opinions? Wrong opinions. I mean, you have to be clear opinions that go against reality. You don't want to engage too much. Again, it's much like the question asked earlier. 
um, it's it's appropriate to incline yourself to seek out people who are properly inclined, but doesn't mean to prevent others from seeking you out. I think generally it's a bad idea to avoid people who are seeking you out. Again, except for those cases where they're seeking you out for unwholesome for unwholesome purposes. Thank you, Bhante. That's all the questions we're prepared to ask today. Okay, thank you all. Good 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 audience. It's nice to have so many people interested in these sorts of things. I wish you all peace, happiness. I hope you've benefited from the answers and it's able to help you in your practice in some way. Have a good week. Thank you, Chris, Jim, Rahid, for your help. And see you all next week. Sadhu. Sadhu.